I don't know about you, but for me, spring is my favorite time of year. Uh, it involves a lot of like fresh cut grass and being outside and baseball. Um, <laughs> so that's good. But then also Easter. And so many of you know that Easter is coming and uh, it's my favorite time of year because I love, love, love talking about the resurrection. It's my favorite topic about all that Christ has accomplished through his resurrection. It's, uh, it's by far my favorite time. So. Um, Larry and I, when we were playing in the series, I, w- I was just, we both were just talking about the, the need to just make sure that we understand as a church that Christ has been victorious. And so what we're doing with this beautiful um, just series is just preparing our hearts for what awaits us with just remembering uh, Christ and his resurrection. And so I'm excited for this series, and uh, I have the privilege of talking about a very familiar topic tonight. So, or tonight, you can see what's going on. <laughs> Luke 18 is where we're going to be at, Luke chapter 18. And so if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there. Um, I'm using the ESV, which is the English, st- English Standard Version, which is my preferred Bible translation. If you don't have that, um, you know, you probably have a small computer called a phone in your pocket. You can get one real quick. Um, if not, I encourage you to, to pick one up. Um, because of this series, what we're, what we're doing is really helping us to understand the implications of the gospel. Of just how beautiful and how sweeping the implications and the accomplishments of Christ really are. And uh, how it's so pervasive and it permeates in every component, in every corner of our lives. And that's really our hope is in just the next few weeks that God will start to impress that upon our hearts. And we'll see just the beauty and the richness of the gospel. So... With that being said, let's pray together and, and just, just ask God to help us. God, would you, would you de- indeed do that? Well, we've had opportunity as, a, as your church, brothers and sisters, to gather today. And God, we were able to sing these songs which are so, so true. God, that indeed you have resurrected, that we can instead of ashes and brokenness, we can turn those things into you and receive joy. God, you are constantly redeeming and restoring and making new things. And you're constantly redeeming people to yourself and making them whole and new again. God, you're doing that in many of us in our lives continually. And so we give you thanks for that. God, thank you indeed that you were the kind of God that advocates for the poor and powerless. And God, because of the reality that we ourselves gathered here who are Christians, we We once were powerless to save ourselves. We were indeed poor. God, that you reconciled us to yourself. You redeemed us. And for that, Lord, we're just so grateful. So would you teach us more about what that means? God, as we come to this text in Luke 18 and 19, would you press it upon our hearts to to really begin to see that repentance is necessary, that faith is required, that your kingdom is at hand? And God, apart from your spirit, we can't understand anything that is about to be said and read. So God, would you pour out your spirit in abundance, granting us the minds to be able to understand the hearts in order to believe. And God, would you fuel our affections for you today. God, help us to feel the depth and the weightiness and the freedom and the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us with that today, we pray. For your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we've been going through this series last week, this week, and uh, as we progress. And, and the tagline to this series of victory is the gospel foretold and fulfilled. 
And one of, my, um, one of my desires really is to make sure that we are clear in our communication. And when I prepare sermons, it takes me hours and hours and hours to go through and just make sure that the words I'm using are good and clear and precise because I hate imprecision. I hate confusion. I want people to leave having understood what was talked about and having a clear concept of the things in which we were directing their attention and affections towards. And with that being said, I've noticed over the years that the word gospel has become diluted in its, in its ability to be understood by many people because it's overused. It's used everywhere. Gospel this, gospel that, according to the gospel. Blah, blah, blah. And pretty soon people stop thinking about what the gospel actually is. And I also know that as people start reading the Bible, they start realizing that the gospel is talked about a lot in Scripture. And, it, and in a lot of ways, it's, it's different than what they expect it to be. And I'll give you an example of that. I had somebody come to me one time and they asked the question because they read in Galatians chapter 3 that the gospel was preached to Abraham. Abraham preceded Jesus by thousands of years. And so she naturally asked me this question, how in the world can the gospel be preached to Abraham when Jesus hadn't even lived or died or resurrected yet? And I kindly reminded her that the gospel, yes, includes those things, but it, that is not its totality. That's not everything about the gospel. There's more to it. And she stood back and went, wait, what? Because many times when we think about the gospel, it's simply the person of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. But in the reality, there's so much more to it. There's, there's a greater implication. There's cosmic ramifications of the gospel. There's things that happen to our lives because of this message. And, and so what I've done over the years is come up with a framework and it's three C's that help us to understand the gospel, I think, a little more clearly and a little more fully. Three C's. Alliteration. This is healthy. This might help you remember. The first one is context. The context of the gospel. What I mean by context is the backstory. It's how this good news came about and why you should think it's important. So those things are important. If you've ever read a novel or you've ever watched a movie, you know that context is key. In order to understand who the characters are and, and why they do what they do and talk the way they talk and interact the way they do, it's because of the context. It's because of the background. It's because of the story that preceded or the story behind what is in front of you. And so likewise, the Bible depicts the gospel as having a context, which means a backstory, something going on. And we picked that up in the passage that Larry preached on last week in Luke chapter 18, verse 31. And this is what Luke records. He says, in taking the 12 disciples, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. In other words, Jesus is saying something is about to happen and I'm giving you the context of what is about to happen. It was written about by the prophets long ago. In other words, the context of the gospel is the Old Testament, which has implications for us, which means very important things for us. It's this. In order for us to fully grasp the gospel, we must go back to its roots and source, which is the Old Testament. And if our Old Testament understanding and knowledge is truncated and small and very, you know, just not robust, then our understanding of the gospel will be likewise. It will be small and truncated and not robust. You see, the greatness of the gospel is very much dependent upon how we understand the Old Testament. 
because the gospel finds its roots in the soil of the Old Testament. We cannot ignore the Old Testament. That's one of the reasons why I do not let people, I, I, I don't encourage people to have those little pocket New Testaments because it doesn't make sense. What does it mean for Jesus to be the son of man? That's an interesting thought. What does it mean for a lot of the New Testament? It's, it's understood because of the context. And not only that, but that's the first C. There's the second C, which is the content. And what we mean by that is the historical events themselves. What are the historical events of what we call the gospel? We pick it up in verse 32 of Luke 18. Jesus says, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So the content of the gospel is Jesus and his work, namely his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the, the importance or the, the first importance of the gospel, which is what Paul says, what I handed down to you, that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And on the third day, he rose according to the scriptures, which means the content, which is Jesus died and rose again, is, is put together with the context according to the scriptures giving us a, a more robust and fuller understanding of the gospel. And then the last C is the consequence, which means what does the gospel accomplish? What is it doing? And this is my favorite part about this because there's some confusion here where people understand the gospel to be its consequences, but that's not true. So for instance, when we talk about the gospel, we can't say the gospel is loving your neighbor. That's not true because then that means that anyone who loves their neighbor is doing the gospel. And that's not true. Instead, what we say is the gospel is the good news of what God has done for sinners, enabling them by his grace and empowering them to live out the very things he's commanding them to do, namely love their neighbor. So the gospel is the means by which and the accomplishment of the opportunity to love and serve God exhibited by loving your neighbor. So loving your neighbor is not the gospel. It's a consequence of the gospel. It's a product of that. It's something that has occurred. Now we see other consequences of the gospel. My favorite ones, Colossians chapter 1. These are my favorite verses on the consequences of what, what Jesus has accomplished. And I, I encourage you to commit these to memory because they are so good and you and I will be better friends if you do that. So chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 of Colossians. This is some consequences of the gospel. That God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These are great consequences. At first, when we are born, we are born into the domain of darkness. Sin and death, it, it just engulfs us. But because of what Jesus has done on the cross and through the empty tomb, he has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there's light and life. There is redemption and the forgiveness of sins. I once was blind, now I see. I once was dead, now I live. That's a good consequence. I like verse 19 and 22, not 22, but 20 also, tambien. Verse 19, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What, what the gospel accomplished, as it says in verse 20, is a reconciliation. That word reconciliation implies relationship. And what Jesus has done through his cross is he has made peace in all the relationships that are embedded in creation. For instance, when everything was created, humanity rightly related to God. Remember, they walked together in the cool of the garden. And there was a right relationship between Adam and Eve. Human beings related to each other really well. And then there was a good relationship with themselves. Like Adam wasn't self-conscious and he wasn't filled with shame and, and bitterness. He was like a healthy inward human being. And not only that, but they were good stewards of the garden in which God placed them. They didn't exploit the natural resources around them. They didn't pollute. It was a healthy place. But all of that was broken because of sin. And then people had enmity or hatred towards God. They started to hate each other. Remember Adam and Eve started blaming each other about who was at fault? And not only that, but then they were naked and ashamed, which means inwardly there was all kinds of conflict and they wanted to destroy themselves in many ways. And then there was that relationship to the natural world around them. It all became un, just undone. And so what Jesus is doing is he's reconciling all things to himself. In other words, all those relationships are now being mended and healed because Jesus is making peace by the blood of his cross. The gospel is accomplishing the very peace that you and I want most. I love that. Because we have all kinds of people in our culture that are saying, our culture is messed up. This world's broken. And I would say, it sure is. What are you going to do about it? And the reality is all of our efforts may be like a Band-Aid on cancer. It ain't going to help. But instead, we have actually something at our disposal which can actually bring peace where there is conflict. There can actually be peace where there is war. There can be justice where there is injustice. And we actually know about that, we Christians. That's important. It's called the gospel. There is so much that the gospel has accomplished. I love 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery that we shall not all sleep, which is another word for we won't all stay dead. But we all will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Verse 54, when the perishable, the meaning this earthly body puts on the imperishable, which means our new resurrected body and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means the gospel is the story of victory over death, victory over sin, victory over Satan. We are reconciled to God. There is hope and there is opportunity for people in this broken world to finally and fully be restored and healed. And that is the gospel's consequence. That's good. So... No wonder why Paul said things like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That makes sense now. Are you ashamed to say you can be healed if you want? No. That'd be silly. And so we as Christians need to embrace that concept. There's consequences to the gospel. 
embedded in the context of the Old Testament, accomplished in the content of the person and work of Jesus, for which we rejoice and say, thanks be to God. That's beautiful. In order for us to understand our text in Luke chapter 18, verses 35 to chapter 19, verse 10, we need to understand how Luke writes. I think this is always one of the things I I want to make sure that we as a congregation understand, that Jesus and God is very, very, very concerned with what is written in Scripture, and therefore I'm very concerned with what is written in Scripture. But we have to remember also that God is a talking God. He communicates with us, and therefore it's not only what God says that's important, but it's also how he communicates it. In other words, let's look at what Luke does. How does he write this and what does he do? And one of the themes that Luke does in his gospel is remind us of these people group called the tax collectors and sinners and about how they interact with Jesus. We pick it up in Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. They were social outcasts. They were misfits. They were hated they were despised they were despicable they were lowlifes and they were being drawn to Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them and you see there's another group of people who in their pride can't stand what they see how can this good moral rabbi Jesus actually be hanging out with these despicable lowlifes and they hated it And there's a theme there, a theme so much, in fact, that in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus decides to tell this story. Look at this in verse 9. He says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So Jesus is about to tell them this story. And the whole reason why he's about to tell them this story is this. Some people think that they have it inwardly, that they have what it takes to be righteous. They're so proud and arrogant, they think they're, you know, they can do it. And that has resulted in them treating other people with contempt or hatred. And so Jesus tells this parable. Two men went up and they began to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. The Pharisee stands in the presence of God and says, God, thank you that you made me who I am. And I'm not like this schmuck over here, the tax collector. He's a sinner. I'm not. I pray. I give. I do all the stuff I'm supposed to do. Aren't I great? And then the tax collector prays and he beats his chest and he doesn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus concludes, guess one, guess which one is justified. Guess which one God is proud of. It's the humble. And he says, those who are proud will be humbled and those who are humbled will be exalted. And so there's that theme throughout the book of Luke of tax collectors and sinners being drawn to Jesus and Jesus being willing to be with them. And I'm beginning to believe that the more we preach Jesus at Golden Hills, the more tax collectors and sinners are going to want to gather. Does that make sense to you all? That means we're going to get a lot of broken people up in this church. And if we don't have grace, they won't want to stay. Let's have grace. So why this matters is the next section. The rebuke and the rich person. There's a pattern to the way Luke writes. He, he depicts for us this episode in which these children, these infants are being brought to Jesus and the parents are rebuked for what they're doing. The disciples jump in and go, knock that off. Jesus corrects them and goes, no, 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 you bring them to me. Bring them, children. Bring, bring the kids to me. Because unless you receive these children like this, 
how they are, you're not going to be able to receive the kingdom of God. And then the next story is about a rich man coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know what to do. And he goes, I've done all this stuff. I'm good. I'm proud. I accomplished all that. And Jesus said, cool. You have one thing you lack still. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And he went away sad because he was very rich. In other words, what, what Luke does is, is he, he shows us, here's a group of people called infants and children who are utterly dependent on other people to live. Here's a rich person who is utterly dependent on himself to live. God approves of this and not that. And now we have another story where in verse 35 to the end of the chapter, we have a blind beggar who is rebuked because he is utterly dependent on other people for his welfare. And then we have a, rich, a story of a rich person named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a depiction of what you should do in response to Jesus as opposed to what the rich ruler did in response to Jesus. One went away sad, the other one went away rejoicing. And Jesus is going to introduce us to the to reason why there's two responses like that. The third thing we need to know about this context is why Jesus, uh, what Jesus understood about his purpose in coming. In other words, why did Jesus come? He tells us in Luke chapter 4, he goes into a synagogue and he's handed a scroll from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, and he reads it. And it reads like this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, when Jesus read that and he said, today it's fulfilled, he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the long-awaited one who's coming to preach the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. And the evidence of the kingdom of God being at hand is people who are blind will see. People who are poor are going to have good news preached to them. People who are captive are going to be liberated. It's going to be the, a year of the Lord's favor. And that is how you know the kingdom of the Lord is upon you. But here's the thing is many people have taken that concept in churches today and they have said, ah, see, you only know if the spirit is truly working or the kingdom of God is truly in a church if people are being healed left and right and everywhere. And I would say, yes, that's partially true. But we have to remember Luke chapter 4 is followed by Luke chapter 5. And sometimes Jesus performs physical miracles in order to teach a spiritual truth. Let's pick it up in Luke chapter 5. If you remember, there's four guys who are really good friends and they have another friend, a fifth guy, who's paralyzed. And they decide since Jesus is preaching in one of the homes that they're going to take up their paralyzed friend, put him on a mat, tie him up, dig a hole in the roof where Jesus is preaching, and they're going to lower this paralyzed man on a mat in front of Jesus. Can you imagine that for a second? Jesus preaching, you got some rocks and stones falling on his head, like what in the world? Finally, the roof caves in and you see four heads pop out. Yep, he's right there. And then they lower their buddy down in a mat right in front of Jesus. So he comes down. And you imagine the paralyzed guy just sitting there like, oh, it's so embarrassing. I'm so sorry. I didn't ask him to do this. And Jesus looks at the man. And here's what he says in Luke chapter 5. When he saw their faith, the, the four heads popping out of the hole in the roof, he says to the man who's lying on the paralyzed on this mat, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? 
And then he says this, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? I love that question. It's like me looking around, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. How do you know whether or not they are? We can't test it. But if we brought a paralyzed person up here and I looked at them and I go, walk, and they stand up and walk and get down the stairs and take off, run through the back door, you can test that. But what's harder to say? Heal somebody or do something that can't be tested? And obviously the harder thing is to heal someone. The easier thing is just to say your sins are forgiven. But look at what Jesus does, verse 24. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. <laughs> and immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they were glorifying God and were filled with awe saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. This is crazy. I'm glad I came to church. <laughs> this is amazing. But do you see what Jesus is doing? I'm healing you to teach you a lesson. Your healing of being paralyzed and being raised up and walking out of here is so that you may know a spiritual truth, namely, I have all authority. And I can forgive whoever I darn well please. What? That's amazing. But do you notice the physical healing is telling us a greater spiritual truth? And so as we encounter this blind beggar who wants to be healed, we have to keep that in the back of our mind. Jesus came to give sight to the blind, but through the, the blind having sight, he's teaching a greater spiritual truth. You following me? Verse 35, here we go, Luke 18. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging now, just so you understand this, beggars are social outcasts. They are not beautiful. They are not powerful. They are not successful. At this time, they were considered to be a drain on society. They were ostracized. They were hated. Most of the time, if you ended up being a beggar, it's because your family had either abandoned you or you don't have family left. You can't provide for yourself. You can't cook for yourself. You can't work. You can't do anything but beg. You are utterly dependent on other people in order for you to survive. And people hated you. And there's this man. And hearing the crowd go by, he inquired what all this meant. Remember, he can't see, so he's just hearing commotion. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And so he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. I love that. This beggar is crying out for mercy. The word mercy means to alleviate misery. Son of David, alleviate my misery. Help me. I'm nothing. I'm a beggar. I got nothing. I have no prospects. I don't have what it takes. I can't fend for myself. I'm nothing. And you remember the, the infant? They were rebuked as well. Why? Because they're utterly dependent on the resources of another to survive. Likewise, beggars are utterly dependent on the resources of another in order for them to survive. And Jesus says, people like that, they get the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's until you get to the point in your life where you recognize you do not have the resources you need to live and to survive and to be saved from your sins, 
you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is reserved for beggars who understand I don't have what it takes, but Jesus has all that I need. And until we get to the point where Jesus becomes in our mind and our hearts and our affections the greatest treasure who has all the resources that we need to be saved and live, we cannot ever experience the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus is teaching this. Let's keep going. Verse 40. And Jesus stopped, commanded him, this blind man, to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I don't know about you, but when I read this, I just kind of got kind of chuckle. Remember in, in Luke 5 where people are like, blah, 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 and he knows their thoughts, understands what their heart is, what they're thinking and feeling. And now all of a sudden Jesus hears this blind man call out to him and he walks over to him and goes, hey, what do you want me to do for you? It's like, hey, Captain Obvious, you know what this man wants. He can't see. But I love what Jesus does. He, people are rebuking this man. Get out of here. You're despicable. Get out of here. Get out of the way of Jesus. He's more important than, than wasted time on you. But Jesus calls this blind man near to him. And I imagine near, nearness means proximity, which means Jesus calls this man to himself. And I imagine that this man is blind, and so obviously he's not making direct eye contact with Jesus. He's looking over Jesus' shoulders, looking around, whatever. But I imagine Jesus takes this man's face in his hands and, and corrects his face and gets him to look eye to eye. Even though the man doesn't know that he's looking in the eyes of Jesus, Jesus then asks him this question, what do you want me to do for you? You have to understand that a social outcast like this would have never been touched in years. Nobody would have paid attention to this man. And here he is being touched upon his face by this rabbi who's taking a great interest in him and wants to know what it is that he wants. How do you feel in that moment? Whew. That touch probably changed this man's life more than we even know. And I love what happens because he says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus knows full well what this man needs but he's soliciting a response from this man i know what you need but i need you to verbalize to me that you know what you need tell me you don't have what it takes do you you can't fend for yourself you can't see you can't survive you're right jesus i can't i can't do any of these things but you can make me you can make me see. You can make me live. You can, you can help me survive. You can do it. You have the resources. I don't. Next verse. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but when you sit there, I imagine Jesus perhaps even getting on his knees, holding this man's face, correcting it, looking eye to eye. What is it that you want me to do? Tears coming. I just, I just want to see. I just want to live. I just want to be normal. Okay, recover your sight then. And the first thing that this man sees, eyes full of tears, is the face in the hands of no other than Jesus. Hi there. Whew, come on, you. When you see that, and you see the beggar's dependency, and you see that he just, he just wants Jesus, 
And Jesus says to him, your faith has made you well. Jesus does not mean, man, you are, man, you have robust faith. Your faith is incredible. You're so, you're so, I mean, you're, you're so fervent and you, you just, mm. You notice that his faith is not in the intensity. Or Jesus, Jesus is not recommending him because of his intensity of faith. He's, he's acknowledging the fact that you put your faith in me. You see, what saves us and what heals us ultimately it's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith. And if we believe in ourselves, we're the object of our faith. And from ourselves, we, we get our own resources. But if we place our faith in another object, namely Jesus, we get all his resources, which are infinite. Do, do you see why that's important, brothers and sisters, why, why, why Jesus solicits a response? He wants us to say, I need you. Because the only thing you need to be saved is need. That's all you need. And that's why in our culture, so many people object to Jesus because it is a sign of weakness to announce that you have need. But not for this man. And what I love about this is it, it depicts for us. Let's keep going. And immediately he recovered his sight. And he followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. This man got healed, amen and amen. This is incredible. Remember, sometimes Jesus tells a spiritual greater truth through a physical healing. So what might Jesus be trying to communicate to us? I think it's this. The kingdom of God is at hand. I think what Jesus is trying to communicate is you need to understand that the Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is here. And what's broken is about to be fixed. What's lost is about to be found. What's blind is about to see. What is deaf is about to hear. What is mute is about to speak. The lame is about to leap with joy. And I take that straight from, from Isaiah 35. You see, Isaiah 35 makes this promise that the kingdom of God, when it comes, it's going to provide this. And listen to what Isaiah 35 writes. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, the presence of God, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Way. That is the promise of God for the kingdom of God. But you and I are living at a time in which Jesus has come, and yet we are in a time in which we still long for more. You get that? We turn on the news, we see injustice, we see all kinds of racism, sexism, we see wars, rumors of wars, all this kind of stuff, and it freaks everybody out. But what really is happening is we know of a better world, and we don't yet see it. And so we long for it. And God has made a promise, there is a new world, there is a better world, and you want it, you're going to get it if you're a Christian. Look at how he promised in Isaiah 65, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into your mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. I don't know about you, but when you hear a promise like that, you go, how do I get that? I want that. I want, I want a place in which no more of my loved ones will die of cancer. You want that? I want a place in which no more disease. I want a place in which there's cities filled with love and not crime. I long for that. And you know what? Even if you're not a Christian here this morning, you, you want that too. 
Yes, you do. And I love what Revelation 21 reminds us of. That we're living in a time where the kingdom of God has already come and yet it's not fully here yet. But you better understand one thing is the fullness of the kingdom of God is indeed coming. And here it is, Revelation 21, where the apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Remember Isaiah 65, Jerusalem to be a joy? It was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new again. That's the promise of the fullness of the kingdom of God. It's coming. Now, you and I live in a world in which there is great grief. We are grieving. We're losing loved ones. There is grief because there's, there's all kinds of injustice in our world. And we're grieving. We long for more. And yet we, see, we don't see the fullness of the kingdom of God here. And the Bible says, yes, that's exactly what it's like to be a Christian. But brothers and sisters, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, we as Christians ought never to grieve as people who have no hope. To put it positively, it means this. In this life, there will be grief. But you as Christians are to grieve as those who have hope. As bad as this world is, this is not the final word. More's coming. And, and, and so I have to stop and just kind of ask the question, what is the Christian hope? Because some people outside the church have this false understanding of what Christians believe. Like we just want to sit around and hate people. Nope. We want people to flourish. That's what we want. As a precursor and a foretaste of the new creation in which there's infinite joy. Let me give you a sampling of, of this from Romans chapter 8. Ooh, it's good. The Apostle Paul says this. For the, man, I'm getting goosebumps. For the creation, that the creation, the, the natural world, trees and rocks and squirrels and dirt and, and lakes and rivers and ponds, the, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, Adam. Mm. And in hope that the creation itself, the natural world, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You read that? What Paul says is the natural world itself, trees and rocks and streams and rivers and ponds and birds and animals of various kinds, I don't know what kind, but they are in eager anticipation sitting on tiptoe that one day human beings will be redeemed and then they will be redeemed. Do you understand that? The whole natural world is about to be reconciled, which means the new heavens and new earth isn't just like this weird thing where we're all like the, the Michelin baby that sits in a tire and we're all naked and we fly around and we have harps in heaven where we're floating on clouds. And it's like the infinite church service where everything is laden with gold. You think of heaven that way? Stop it. Heaven is a real place. There's streams and trees and rivers and there's grasses and, and there's rocks and we'll get to frolic. And, and there's mountains, and you get the mountain climb. 
But see, it's a real place. It's a real thing. It's the new heavens and new earth. And I love that because the whole creation is waiting eagerly for when the children of God will be revealed. Because when we get our resurrection body, the natural world gets its resurrection. Oh, I love that because some people are worried, oh, I'll never get to Europe. Shucks. Don't worry about that. You're getting a new heavens and new earth. And we have eternity to explore it. You want to see the Swiss Alps? You might see them enhanced because it will be free of pollution. Whoa. What does it look like to see a forest that has never been touched by human logging? What does it look like to see animals free of disease? What does it look like to behold a sunset that you don't have to see through the lights of the city and airplanes flying by? Are you starting to get a taste for this? Ooh, it's good. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the consequence of the gospel. There's coming a day, brothers and sisters, where there is resurrection. As Philippians 3.20 says, we await Jesus coming because when Jesus comes, we'll be transformed and these lowly bodies will get our glorious body and we'll become like Jesus. 1 John 3, chapter 2 and 3 talks about what we will be has not yet appeared, but when Jesus comes back and we behold him, we will become like him. And whoever hopes like this purifies himself because Jesus is pure. And then we're told in 2 Peter 3.13, according to the promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then verse 14 says, therefore, what kind of people should we be? We should be diligent to seek purity. There's an ethical dimension to this. Have you heard the saying, Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? That should never, ever be true of us. In fact, what, what, what the Bible depicts is if you understand and have a concept of the new creation, then that concept should be reflected in the way in which you live today. And if you understand what life should be, then you try to make that happen on earth. Remember what Jesus prayed? Your kingdom come, your will be done in heaven as on earth. And we have to realize there's this truth. Look, if... If you understand the new creation is where you're headed as a Christian, then your destination of the new creation will determine your preparation on this earth. Do you understand that concept? Your destination determines your preparation. If I told you guys I was going to the snow this weekend and I showed up in rainbow flip-flops and a, and a tank top and some, some board shorts, you would think I was, one, crazy, or two, no concept of what snow is. And if I told you in my bag I have surfboards and I have like a little beach towel and some sand toys, you would say, okay, this guy's fully just lost it or he still doesn't understand what snow is because my preparation for the snow is wrong. I got to get geared up, get some gloves, get a beanie because my destination of the snow determines my preparation. And if my preparation is off, then I clearly don't have any concept of what my destination actually is. Now, the preparation on this earth is ethical. That's what, that's what uh, Peter and what Paul is trying to get to us. If you truly have hope in the new creation, it impacts the way you live today. 
And the question is, how does it impact us today? And that's where Zacchaeus comes in. We've got to go through this pretty quickly. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. A couple things about that. Chief tax collector means that he was the one in charge and he had a lot of tax collectors that worked underneath him. He was rich. The only way to get rich as a tax collector is to um, do business with extortion and bribery. This man is wicked. He's wicked. He's a sinful, wicked, God-hating man. Okay, no matter how many children's songs you sing about the wee little man, he's wicked. Verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. So that means he heard about Jesus, but he's never laid eyes on him. But account of the crowd, he could not see Jesus. Why would the crowd do little Zacchaeus any favors by helping him to see Jesus? Instead, they're elbowing him, get out of here, I hate you. And the other one is this, is that because he was small in stature, so he was a short guy. And so Zacchaeus ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. So that painted the picture for us, right? Zacchaeus is skimming off the top, wicked man. He climbs up a tree to behold Jesus. And look what Jesus does. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and saw Zacchaeus. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, physical things like this are teaching a greater spiritual truth. I love this because Jesus does not ask Zacchaeus for an invitation to his house. Hey, Zacchaeus, what do you think? Can I come over today? Yeah? Yeah? Maybe? Or, hey, Zacchaeus, hey, I would really love to interact with you, but you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just make sure that, you know, you have your will and, and you can freely choose this if you want me in your life or not. Okay, I'll just wait patiently. Do you notice that none of that's happening? Jesus shows up, sees a dude in a tree and goes, hey, Zacchaeus, come down here. I'm going to your house tonight. You're feeding me. I'm hanging out at your house. What? <laughs> Let me ask a question. Who takes the initiative in this encounter? Jesus does. I've heard sermons, bad sermons, that talk about Zacchaeus as being this great example of how you can overcome your obstacles to get to Jesus. Or how this is a great story of how you need to discipline yourself to take resolve and take hold of Jesus for yourself. Well, get out of here. Read the Bible. Zacchaeus is in a tree. Jesus goes, get down here. That's an imperative, which means you don't have an option. I'm coming to your house tonight. I'm eating your food. I'm sitting at your table, drinking your water. What does that mean for us spiritually? It means that there's a necessity that unless Jesus acts upon us by his gracious initiative, we will always sit in a tree and never want Jesus. But Jesus is the one who calls us to himself out of the tree. And he calls us into his own heart. It's not that we call Jesus into ours. You have to understand that. And I love that spiritual truth here. Jesus... Zacchaeus, I'm Jesus. I'm coming to your house tonight. You and me. Yeah. And I love this because, and you would think like, oh, man, if, if Zacchaeus was an American, he would be really upset right now. I did not invite you. I'm not giving you the gate code to my community. <laughs> but look what Zacchaeus does in response. He hurried down the tree, came down, and what did he do? He rebuked Jesus. How dare you tell me what you're going to do in my life? I'm, I got my own will. 
<laughs> no. Zacchaeus ran down a tree and embraced Jesus, welcomed him, received him, and look at the word, the adverb, joyfully. Because when Jesus calls you to himself, what he's doing is offering life, and he's promising you the satisfaction that you can find in no other thing or person. And he's calling you to himself, come, taste and eat. Come to the waters and be satisfied. Come, come to me and I will give you the riches fair. And I tell you what, when Jesus calls your name, you respond joyfully because you will find that in Jesus, you have your greatest satisfaction, not in the stuff he gives you, but in the person himself. And so you receive Jesus joyfully as a response to Jesus's gracious initiative to come to him. And that's how people get saved. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't make decisions. Dead people don't send out invitations. Dead people stay dead. And until Jesus says, you there, dead person, live, you stay dead. But Jesus, in his gracious initiative, said, live. Oh, man, Zacchaeus, I bet you anything, that was a great meal that he had. Jesus didn't force Zacchaeus to embrace him. Jesus didn't force Zacchaeus to go against his will. Jesus was the very satisfaction and fulfillment of Zacchaeus' dreams and will. Man. Verse 9, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I have defrauded anyone. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Some people have interpreted verse 8 as being Zacchaeus' self-justification that he is indeed a good person. Jesus, you're in my house and you think I'm a tax collector, I'm a bad guy, but really I'm not. I give my money to the poor and I, I do just things. I, I restore people fourfold if I defrauded them. Think about this though. Why would the crowd hate him so much if he was so generous? In fact, he wasn't generous. He was rich. And he exploited people and bribed people. And so what Zacchaeus does in verse 8 is he demonstrates what repentance looks like. Repentance is the action where you go from one direction to another. If you're headed this way, now you go that way. That's what repentance means. It's the change of course. And when Jesus came upon the earth, he said this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn your life around. Head in a different direction. Believe the gospel. And what Jesus was saying was, I'm calling you to myself. And I'm calling you to no longer trust your own resources and ingenuity and power. And I'm calling you to trust me fully and in every way. And until you get to the point where you are fully trusting in me like an infant or a blind beggar, you cannot have the kingdom of God. If you think there's even 1% of your salvation that you do, you won't be saved. It's all of me or none of me. Trust me. And so when Jesus had Levi over for dinner, remember Levi the tax collector? At the end of that encounter, he says in Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous. I have come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus is calling sinners everywhere to a new life in which they have hope in a joyful and just world called the new heavens and the new earth. But repentance always has fruit associated with it. And what we mean is if you are truly repentant, it will be evidenced by the fruit you bear. And that's why in Luke chapter 3, the apostle or John the Baptist 
tells people who are repenting and getting baptized, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Demonstrate to me how you have repented. Let me see your repentance lived out. And I think that's what's happening in verse 8. Zacchaeus is standing before Jesus and saying, here is how my repentance is going to be evidenced. I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor, and I'm going to walk in justice. Remember what Micah 6, 8 says? Was it that the Lord your God requires? To be humble, act justly. Remember that? This is Jesus demonstrating for us in the interaction with Zacchaeus what that really looks like. So what does it look like to walk bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? At least this, that we are radically generous and we are radically concerned with justice in this world. We cannot be on the sideline to people who are impoverished, whether it be physical poverty, emotional poverty, mental poverty. We as Christians, there is no room in this. <laughs> we have to be gravely concerned with those who are our neighbors. And let us never make the mistake of asking Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? That question's already been asked and answered. Love your neighbor. Be gravely concerned for them. Be radically generous and be concerned with justice. And that is fruit of repentance. And I love what he says lastly, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. It doesn't mean that Zacchaeus has been saved because he is a Jew. He has been saved because he's a man of faith. Galatians 3, 7 says this, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The true people of God are not Jewish by nationality, but they are Jews by faith. In other words, they believe God and trust him for their salvation. For the Son of Man, verse 10, came to seek and to save the lost. Unless you recognize your blindness and your lostness, you can never be saved. There's a lot in here we're going to keep covering over the next couple weeks. So, Father, help us. As we look at your word, we see that there is so much hope. We see a new creation. We see a new heavens and earth. We see a place where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrows, no more death. We see a place in which there's a new Jerusalem, this holy city, in which billions of people are inhabitants of this great city with streets and buildings, and yet we see a place where there is no crime. We see a place in which people walk around in bodies that do not age, that do not fear disease, and have no fear that they will be murdered. We see a place in which there is no pollution, there is no poverty. And so, God, I pray that in our hearts as Christians, you will, you will help us to, in our inspiration and in, in, in our imagination, to envision what this world could look like. And I pray, God, that you would use this church to impact this community for your glory and for our joy. So, God, do this in us, we pray. Help us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Help us to be radically generous, gravely concerned for our neighbor, and to walk in love. I pray these things for our church, God, and pray for me too. In Jesus' name, amen.